Good evening. It's a rainy day here in Wilmington, North Carolina, and this is Third Gear, a Formula One racing podcast. I'm Katie Yin, your host, a marketing major with a passion for Formula One, and on today's episode, I will be answering questions new fans may have as they learn more about the sport. So I went ahead and I asked my friend who knew nothing about the sport to give me some questions that new and upcoming fans may have about Formula One. I also asked my mom, who's been watching with my family and I for the past couple of years, but doesn't consider herself super well-educated on the ins and outs of the sport. So I'm going to go ahead and answer these questions as a fan myself, and I'm going to do my best to explain them correctly and in a way that can be easily understood. So if you guys are new to the sport of Formula One, welcome. I hope you find this podcast helpful and interesting. And longtime fans, feel free to help me correct myself or provide any further information on any of the answers I give. Before I jump right into the questions, I wanted to go ahead and just give you guys some key words that I'll probably be using throughout the podcast and you'll hear constantly throughout Formula One and motorsport in general, just so that you can familiarize yourself with them and kind of get used to hearing them. First up, F1 just means Formula One. It's just an acronym for it. Another word I'll be using constantly constantly is circuit. Circuit just is another word for racetrack. A Grand Prix is another word for the race itself. Next, I'll be referring to the season in Formula One as World Championship. It has two winners, a driver's world champion, and then the team's constructor's champion. I'll also say tire compounds every now and then. Compound just refers to the different types of tires that are used in a race. When I refer to strategy, typically team strategy, I'm referring to how the teams approach the race. Usually it focuses on when teams pit and what compounds they use, but it can also have to do with allowing drivers to pass teammates or when drivers go out in qualifying sessions. Lastly, keep in mind the weekend setup. There are three days in a Grand Prix weekend, Friday, which has two free practice sessions that allow teams to put out the cars, test them, gain data on their performance and things. Saturday, which has free practice three and qualifying, which determines the starting order for the race based on who sets the fastest time, and then Sunday, the race day. All right, so first up, we're going to go ahead and go through some questions for rising fans learning to get more educated in the sport, courtesy of my mom. The first question my mom had is, can you explain tire compounds? How is tire strategy determined, and what are some examples? The biggest goal with choosing tires has to do with deciding between prioritizing speed or endurance, basically. So what the tire does is it tries to get as much grip or the ability for the tire to, like, hold on to the track without slipping around without slowing down the car unnecessarily there are three common dry weather tire compounds used the soft tire which is noted by a red band around the outside these are the fastest kind of tires because they have the most grip but they're thinner and bendier so they wear out faster even more so in hot weather their average race life is about 10 to 15 laps medium tires are a mid compromisable tire They're marked with a yellow band. They are fast, but not as fast as the soft, and they're durable, but not as durable as the hard. The hard tire is marked with a white band and has the least amount of grip and takes longer to warm up. They're technically slower, but they have the best endurance and last longer than any other dry race tires. They're typically used for long stints. Then there's the intermediate tire, which is marked with a green band. This is used for in-between weather, like damp surfaces, maybe a little spitting. Not quite wet enough to need the full wet tires, but not dry enough where you can get the right amount of grip on any slicks. And then there's wet tires. They're marked with a blue band and they're for racing in rain. The soft, medium, and hard tires are referred to as slicks because they don't have tread on them, so instead they're slick. Where like wet and intermediate tires have tread and grooves to help the drivers in wet conditions by dispersing the water. Wet and intermediate tires look more like your common road tires. Slick tires are completely smooth and wouldn't be used on a regular road. 
The teams are given a certain amount of tires for the three-day weekend, typically 13, and they're separated out strategically throughout the weekend. I was doing some research on how the whole allotted tires works for a weekend, and honestly, it was kind of complicated. So in simplest terms I can, they separate out the tires that they can use per weekend for the best results, meaning they always save a pair of soft tires for the Q3 session so they can set the fastest time they can. Basically, teams have to use and return certain tires after practice sessions and qualifying. If they qualify in the top 10, they have to turn in the tires that they set the fastest time on. And in a race, each driver must at least use two different tire compounds. A good example of this was Alex Albon's first race with Williams. He actually managed to go almost the entire race on one pair of hard tires, but was forced to pit in the last few laps because you have to pit at least once and you have to switch tire compounds. So even if you pitted, you started on mediums and then you pitted and then put on mediums again, that would not be allowed. It has to be mediums to soft, mediums to hard, something like that. You have to switch it up. If the driver qualified in the top 10, they also have to start the race on the tires that they qualified in. There are a few terms that you should know when people are describing tires. Scrubbed means the tires are brand new, unused, and need breaking in for a few laps. Slicks means the tires are soft, medium, or hard and don't have tread. Blistering refers to a tire that is beginning to show damage. You can see it on the tires when you can see like dark markings and texture if the car is like in slow motion or something during a race. Lastly, there's flat spots. Flat spot is when a tire locks up during braking, and when the tire locks up, it basically stops rotating and slides along the track rather than turning. When you brake and your tire stops rotating and slides, it basically like files it down, making a flat spot. And every time you brake, typically that spot is more and more likely to be stopped in, and it'll just get worse and worse and worse until you can pit. You can definitely see this in a lot of examples. Almost any time a car locks up, basically when they brake too hard into a corner and their tire stop rotating and a big puff of smoke comes out, that's a lockup. And it means they have a flat spot that they're going to complain about soon. As for strategies, it all comes down to team decisions. They come up to these decisions through the first practice run, they get a feel for the tires on the track, they also use information from past races, information provided by Pirelli, who manufactured the tires, what the weather looks like, and the actual track itself. Here's how different variables can affect strategy. First up is the weather. If it's hot, teams have to consider higher tire degradation and need to make sure that they will have the right tires to accommodate that. Also, if it's wet, they need to be prepared to pit onto intermediates or wet tires depending on how much rainfall there is. Another factor is the track. If the track is more likely to have accidents like street circuits, teams might plan for more pit stops to perform under potential safety cars, whereas if a track is difficult to overtake, teams might opt for fewer pit stops in order to reduce the chances of getting stuck behind people once you're released again. The second question my mom asked is what is DRS and why can't it be used all the time? So DRS stands for Drag Reduction System and in simple terms, it's a tool used to help assist in overtaking. When DRS is enabled, the rear wing of a car opens to reduce drag and allows a driver to go about 10 to 12 kilometers per hour faster or 6 to 7 miles per hour. It's activated by drivers via a button on the steering wheel and it can only be used when in a DRS activation zone and when they're within a second of the car ahead of them. There are detection points before the activation zones that measure the distance between cars and once the distance has been measured to be under a second, a signal is sent to the second car allowing DRS to be activated by the driver. DRS is not activated during the first two laps of an F1 race or following a safety car and if the conditions are deemed too dangerous, the FIA can also choose to disallow it from an entire race. 
DRS zones are determined depending on the track, but are typically found along the main straight or shallow corners that don't require a lot of braking. To answer the second part of the question, DRS can't be used throughout the entire race because it's generally dangerous to take sharp, full corners with an open wing. When the wing is open, it reduces drag, but it removes the downforce that is necessary for the drivers to have control into the corners. If they're braking at high speeds and the DRS flap is open, it can result in loss of control and inevitably crashes. The third question my mom has is how does scoring work and how does determining who wins work? Drivers are assigned points after each race and it's determined by their finishing order. The points are added together per team and driver as the races continue and the driver with the most points at the end of the season can become world champion, where the team with the most combined points wins the constructors championship. Drivers and constructors champions can be determined before the season is over when a team or a driver has so many points that even if they were not to receive any more for the rest of the races in the season and the second place position were to receive maximum points, they still would not have as many points to beat whoever's running in first. Although the point system has changed over time, now there are points awarded for the top 10 finishers in a race. First place gets 25 points, second place gets 18, third gets 15, fourth gets 12, fifth gets 10, 6th get 8, 7th get 6, 8th get 4, ninth get 2, and 10th get 1. There's also an extra point given for the driver with the fastest lap at the end of the race, however, it only counts if they finish in the top 10. Lastly, drivers can also receive points throughout a season for sprint races, but only the top 8 do, with first getting 8 and the next 8 places decreasing by 1 point. Now, there are also some instances where points aren't fully awarded. For example, if a race was ended before 75% of the race could be finished, drivers get half of the points they normally would. A good example of this would be Spa in 2021, where the race was delayed and then canceled, having drivers receive half the points and finish in the order they qualified in. If the race never started or lasted less than two laps, no points are awarded. This is what made the Japan Grand Prix this year, 2022, so confusing. People weren't sure if full points were going to be awarded or half points because of the complicated distance that the time ran. Lastly, points can also be deducted from teams. It's never happened to a driver, however, theoretically it could, and it's very rare for it to actually happen to teams either. Most teams just receive fines or penalty points, but one time we did see this was in 2022 with Racing Point. If you want to see more about it, it's highlighted in the Netflix series Drive to Survive, but Racing Point, now Aston Martin, was accused and found guilty of copying the Mercedes car from the year prior. They were deducted 15 points, which ended up costing them third place in the Constructors' Championship at the end of the season. The last question my mom had was, Formula One is so dangerous, what are all the ways that they keep the drivers safe? Now, there are a lot of safety features that have come around recently, but all in all, Formula One is one of the most dangerous sports in the world, and its safety features have improved throughout history. Sadly, many drivers have lost their lives to Formula One, and measures have been taken to try and prevent these kind of incidents and situations from happening again. But in the beginning, there weren't even full-face helmets or seatbelts in the car. I picked out some of the main safety precautions that have been taken in more recent years that work to keep the drivers safe, and I'll just highlight a few of them now. First up is the super license. All Formula One drivers must obtain a valid super license, which proves that they're capable, experienced, and safely able to drive a Formula One car. Max Verstappen was introduced to the sport when he was just 17, which became a controversial topic because he didn't have a road license yet. The FIA has now put on an 18-year age limit to obtaining the super license. Next up are the helmets. In the first two years of Formula One, drivers typically only wore cloth headpieces and goggles because the helmet didn't become required in the sport until 1952. 
Helmets now are made of carbon fiber and have multiple visors for optimal vision in different conditions like rain, night, and day. And the inside of the helmets are lined with a 3D padding specific to the driver. All helmets and visors undergo an impact and flame test to be sure that they can withstand any sort of crashes or debris. Next up are race suits. The race suits are lightweight and breathable for the drivers while they're also being fire resistant to withstand heats of 600 to 800 degrees Celsius. The drivers also have protective gloves, which are biometric fireproof gloves. They can report pulse and blood oxygen levels to the teams and to race control, and increased fire protection in the gloves was required after Romain Grosjean's crash in 2020. Next up, as we talk about the car, there is a survival cell built into the car. The survival cell is the center section of the car where the driver sits. It's constructed from carbon fiber and Kevlar to become crash resistant and to absorb large amounts of energy. It's built to be indestructible even when the rest of the car breaks away. And inside of the survival cell is a fire suppression system that can be activated by the driver or the team to spray fire retardant foam onto the engine and into the car. Also in the car is the headrest and the Hans device. The Hans device, which is the head and neck support device, is a carbon fiber collar that the drivers wear around their neck and they connect to the back of their helmet and like fit under their seatbelt. The purpose of the collar is to provide neck support, especially during high G crashes, and to keep the driver from getting whiplash and hitting their head on the steering wheel. The headrest also helps with this. It's basically the same thing. It helps prevent whiplash and neck strain. Another feature that helps with safety are wheel tethers. They were created to keep the tires from flying off from the cars. There have been some unfortunate incidents where flying tires resulted in injuries and death of drivers and marshals, and thus the tether was added to try and keep the tires from flying off. Off the car. It also helps keep the car into less pieces, making it much easier for retrieval after incidents. Lastly, the Halo. It was introduced in 2018 and was actually controversial at its original proposition. People thought it took away from the whole open cockpit like idea of Formula One or would negatively impact the driver's visibility. However, we have seen the Halo feature save many lives and most people are 100% confident in its implementation since it has been introduced. The Halo is a titanium ring. It's used for head and cockpit protection and fits around the driver's head, much like a Halo. It has proved to help drivers from flying debris and crashes where the car is upside down or if one is on top of another, or from head-on collisions. If you would like to see specific crashes where the Halo truly did help protect drivers. See Zhouguin Yu's crash from Silverstone 2022, or Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen in Monza of 2021, or also Belgium of 2018, where Fernando Alonso flew over the top of Charles Leclerc. Lastly, in the car, there's also an accident data recorder. All current Formula One cars have an accident data recorder to retrieve information regarding crashes and to determine how well safety features perform during it. And then during the races, there are a few other safety precautions that are taken outside of the drivers in the cars themselves. There are marshals. The marshals are the volunteers at Formula One tracks that are in charge of responding to crashes first. They're trained in first aid and are taught how to handle the incidents. They keep drivers safe by passing along information through flags, warning drivers of incidents or if they're being lapped, and they keep drivers safe by removing debris from the track as well. Another feature is the safety car. 
the safety car has been driven by burned mylander since 2002 the safety car is in charge of setting the pace for cars when there's been an incident it not only keeps the driver safe from incidents and debris but it also allows for the marshals and workers to safely remove obstacles from the track typically one of the most notable safety features is the safety car if any sort of crash happens yellow flags will be waved and the drivers will be alerted to reduce their speed and follow behind the safety car without passing Next up on the track, there are barriers, gravel traps, and runoff areas to help with incidents. Tracks are all lined with special kinds of barriers that are designed to withstand heavy impact. There are four main ones you'll see in Formula One races. The Tech Pro, the Safer Barriers, Tire Barriers, and Armco Barriers. Tech Pro Barriers are typically used in areas that could have a high-speed crash with a gravel runoff area in between them and the track. The barriers are made of foam layers that absorb the impact. These are commonly seen all over the place. One of the more common barriers you will see, especially in incidents. Safer barriers are typically found in street circuits where there's a wall along the side of the track. They're built against the wall and have like some foam padding to keep the car from running into straight concrete. They're built against the wall so that instead they'll absorb the crash and allow the car to kind of run along the barrier rather than bounce back into the track. Tire barriers are exactly what they sound like. This method has been used for a long time and basically just involves bolting tires together to act as a barrier. And then lastly, there are Armco barriers. These are the simple metal sheets along the side of the track. You can see these in the Roman Grosjean Bahrain crash where his car became wedged in the middle of one of these barriers. Tracks also have gravel traps and large asphalt runoff areas to slow the car down if they've lost control or spun out. The last thing I'll be talking about is the refueling ban. There's been several rules that have been put in place to help keep cars more safe, like pit lane speeds and things like that, but the refueling ban has been officially banned since 2010. It was also briefly banned from 1984 to 1994, but basically Formula 1 cars used to be able to refuel during races when they were having a normal pit stop. There have been incidents where the fuel hoses have been dragged down the pit lane, and then an infamous incident where Jos Verstappen's car exploded in a fireball in the 1994 Hockenheim Grand Prix, but also for financial financial reasons, refueling has been banned. So now we're going to be talking about questions for complete beginners. I asked my friend Sydney, who has never watched a Formula One race before and knows hardly anything about it other than what I talk about, and these are some questions she had. The first question Sydney had was, why is it called Formula One? The first ever Formula One race took place in France in 1946, and in 1950 was the first ever official FIA Formula One World Championship. When coming up with the name, it was believed that Formula was a word that summarized the racing division best, and the sport was originally called Formula Internationale, although some people did end up calling it Formula A. Eventually, it was called Formula One because it was recognized as the premier formula racing, the fastest, best, and most competitive racing there was and is. Her second question was how was Formula One different from other racing like NASCAR? Now, we're from America, so NASCAR is one of the more popular style of racing, but I'm going to go ahead and compare it to IndyCar first since they're more similar, at least in looks, and then I'll talk a little bit about NASCAR as well. So Formula One is the fastest single-seater open-wheeled regulated racing in the world. Basically what that sentence means, it's like the first sentence you can read when you open the Wikipedia page about it, is that Formula One is the fastest single-seater, meaning it only sits one person. Open-wheeled, meaning the wheels are found outside of the body, not underneath of the body of the car. And regulated, just meaning that it's recognized as a sport and it has rules and regulations based off of an organization. One of the big difference between Formula 1 and IndyCar is that the tracks or the circuits are a variety of different shapes, turns, speeds, and conditions. 
In Formula One, teams manufacture their own car and chassis, which is the body, which means that each team has a different car, whereas in IndyCar, teams are given engines and chassis suppliers, making the race based more on strategy and driver ability than engineering. Formula One cars are built to handle fast straights and high-speed corners, and they can accelerate from 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in about 2 seconds, and they can reach average speeds of 360 kilometers per hour, where Indy cars are more built for oval circuits because their aerodynamics make it harder for them to handle circuits that F1 races on. They can go from 1 to 100 kph in about 3 seconds, and they have top speeds of 380. While that makes it sound as though the cars have about the same acceleration and speed, IndyCar does run on tracks without a lot of braking and turning like F1 cars are built to be able to withstand and perform in. The two cars handle very differently and many drivers who have tried to participate in indie style racing after driving Formula One have had difficulties, including Fernando Alonso who raced in the IndyCar, as well as being a two-time Formula One world champion. As for NASCAR, which is more popular in America, you'll notice some differences based on the look of the cars alone. NASCAR is a stock car style racing, meaning the wheels are located underneath the body of the car and they look similar to a street car. Stock cars weigh about double the weight of a Formula 1 car and the drivers are completely surrounded and encased by a protective shell body of the car, whereas in Formula 1 the driver's head is exposed as they sit in a cockpit of an open-bodied car. Formula 1 circuits are designed to have both high and low speed corners with all shapes, sizes, and directions, where NASCAR only competes in oval-shaped tracks where the speed is mostly consistent throughout a race. The rules are also different. A Formula 1 race typically finishes in under 2 hours, where NASCAR can take up to 3. NASCAR also has up to 6 pit stops, where Formula 1 only uses 1 or 2, though technically there is no limit. There are 40 drivers on a NASCAR track where there's only 20 in Formula 1, and although in NASCAR they're not allowed to intentionally crash into one another, contact is rarely punished. In Formula 1, any contact between cars typically results in a penalty, and cars are required to retire or seek repairs in the pits unless no driver gains an advantage. Next up, Sydney asks what some characteristics of a good Formula 1 driver are. Good characteristics of F1 drivers include adaptability. The drivers are moving quick and situations in a race change at the drop of a hat. Drivers need to be able to adapt and handle situations quickly, sometimes in under a second. They have to have good reactions. Going along with that, Formula 1 drivers have some insane reflexes that allow them to react to crashes, corners, and competition. They need to be able to concentrate 100% throughout the entirety of a race. Drivers also have good fitness. Um, They need to be physically fit in order to withstand the g-forces their body is under, as well as being able to perform and stay healthy throughout the duration of a race, sometimes in incredibly hot conditions. They're weighed before and after races and can typically lose from 4 to 8 pounds during a race. Another thing good drivers have is knowledge. Something I typically note about driver knowledge is Max Verstappen's ability to discuss in detail any section of a track, features of his car, or inner thoughts as he races. In an interview with GQ, Max talked about his interview with Helmut Marko, who's the head of Red Bull Racing, where at 16, he said, I'm quite a geek with races. Like, I know a lot about any kind of racing, so that helps to answer questions. But my dad had also always drilled into me that I needed to know about my sponsors as well, what they do, what they're involved in, how many employees they have, how many shops they have. And Helmut said that Max would know the weight of his car if someone asked him. Good drivers tend to be knowledgeable in what they're doing. They know the ins and outs of their car, the engineering, the marketing, the sponsorships, the track. Everything they can, they know. Good drivers also have a good team dynamic and good sportsmanship. If you aren't willing to accept help from your team and your teammate, drivers will not be able to succeed. Although Formula One is very focused on the individual, it's also very much a team-oriented sport. 
drivers also have to have good drive. They have to be able to have the passion for it. They have to be able to see things that others don't, whether that's a gap or an overtaking spot that someone might not have noticed or understanding something is wrong with the car at the drop of a hat. Lastly, my personal quality I look for in good drivers is their risk-taking. Them being able to push the car to the limit and themselves to the limit is incredibly important and what makes watching races interesting. For question four, Sydney asked, is Max Verstappen the best driver in Formula One history? If not, who is and what makes them so good? Well, as I appreciate Sydney saying that Max is the best driver because he is my favorite and he's probably the only one she knows, throughout history there have been a few drivers that have stand out as being the greatest of all. Chances are, if you ask people who the greatest Formula One driver is, you will get a different answer almost every time, but a few drivers' names will be repeated. It is hard to have one person who stands out as being the greatest due to how much the sport has changed over time. The sport started in 1950 and since insane amount of rules changes, technical changes, even the duration of a season have changed immensely. So it's hard to kind of compare current drivers to drivers from the beginning of the sport. Without a doubt, if you ask names like Michael Schumacher, Ayrton Senna, Alan Prost, Lewis Hamilton, Jim Clark, and even Nicky Lauda or Nigel Mansell are mentioned. Lewis Hamilton and Michael Schumacher are both tied for having the most world championship titles at seven, but if we were to rank the drivers by wins alone, you would have Lewis Hamilton with the most race wins of 103 out of his 310 race starts and seven world championship titles, followed by Michael Schumacher in second with 91 wins out of his 308 race starts and seven world championship titles. In third, Sebastian Vettel with 53 wins of his 299 race starts and four world championship titles. Vettel also holds the record for the most races won in a row with nine. In fourth, Alan Prost with 51 wins, 199 race starts, and four world championships. In fifth, we have Ayrton Senna with 41 race wins, 161 race starts, and three world championships. Max Verstappen in sixth with 35 race wins, 163 race starts, and two world championships. In seventh, Fernando Alonso, 32 race wins, 355 race starts, the most of anyone, and two world championships. Nigel Mansell, who has 31 race wins, 187 race starts, and one world championship. Jackie Stewart, with 27 race wins, 99 race starts, and three world championships. Nicky Lauda, with 25 race wins, 171 race starts, and three world championships. And then tied with him, Jim Clark, with 25 race wins out of his 72 race starts and two world championships. That being said, drivers can not only be ranked by wins alone. In recent years, the seasons have increased in race number and technology has improved to allow drivers to start surpassing records more and more. And another factor is careers. Often Senna is referred to as one of the greatest drivers of all time despite his career wins and championships not being as high as some of the others. This is because unfortunately he passed away after crashing during the San Marino Grand Prix in 1994. I asked some of my family and friends who enjoy the sport and receive these answers. My brother said Prost, Senna, or Schumacher. My older brother said Schumacher or Senna, and my dad said Schumacher or Fangio. Fangio is the Argentinian five-time world champion who dominated for the first decade of Formula One. I am going to do an episode where I dive into an old season or old driver's history, so let me know if there's anything or anyone specific you'd like to hear about. Next up, Sydney asked, does it help the drivers being short so they can fit in the car? 
The average height of a Formula One driver is 5'9", or 1.77 meters. Although drivers aren't necessarily short so they can fit into the car, as the car is essentially built around the driver. However, one large advantage of being shorter is weighing less. Drivers' workouts do not aim to build muscle like most other athletes, but instead drivers work to weigh as low as possible while maintaining enough strength to handle driving the car. Being short just means that they already have the advantage of weighing less and therefore going faster. However, there are some drivers so light and so short that they need to add extra weight to the car to make sure that it is legal by racing standards. This would include drivers like Yuki Tsunoda, who is 5'3". Next up, Sydney asked what my top moment in Formula 1 was that I have experienced. One of the greatest Formula 1 moments for me was watching Abu Dhabi 2021, where Max Verstappen became a first-time world champion. Growing up watching Formula 1, I chose to follow Verstappen when he began his career and started driving for Red Bull halfway through the 2016 season. I chose him because he was hardly older than me, and I remember thinking if someone his age can do something incredible like this, then I can do things for myself too, and I don't have to wait until I'm older. Another top moment was watching the Hockenheim Grand Prix in 2019. My older brother was actually at the race himself, which I had talked about with him in the last episode, and my entire family watched it together from home. Although originally we didn't look like it was going to be a fun race because Sebastian Vettel was starting from the back of the grid, it ended up being one of the greatest races I ever have watched even to this day. Lastly, Sydney asked, what is something that you wish you got to experience that you didn't watch or weren't alive for yet? As I am still somewhat a recent fan of the sport myself, I've missed a lot of the history that led Formula 1 to what it is today. I would have loved to see Prime Sebastian Vettel at Red Bull or Michael Schumacher in his unstoppable five consecutive year world championship winning titles. Or I'd love to see on-track battles between the legends of the sport, Alan Prost and Aaron Senna. Well guys, that's going to be all the questions for today. I hope if you're new to the sport or even if you're not that you learned something new. Please feel free to give me any constructive criticism or add something to any of the questions that I may have missed. I want to go ahead and apologize for the crazy schedule I've been posting. I haven't been quite up to date as I said I would be. However, I have a bunch of fun ideas to keep us going until the season restarts. And season two of the podcast will come out February 22nd, where I'll be talking about the new liveries and getting ready for the 2023 season. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. This is Third Gear, and I'll see you guys next week.